today on Owl Have You Know. You know, that's what I just really encourage people to do is, like I said, find one person in your community or, or talk to an organization. Is there somebody in Africa or some other place that you can help? And, and I would you know, even suggest that, you know, really sew into somebody and just see what happens. Trust in people and try to you know, build them up as a mentor. Welcome in. I am here with Scott Noel. My name is David Drugliever, Rice NBA class of 2012. And Scott Noel is class of 2004, a little... A uh, little ahead of me on that one. Beat me to the punch, Scott. <laughs> yeah. So, Scott, welcome, welcome in. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for talking to me, David. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And Scott, I'll uh, sling out the the quick intros here for folks tuning in. Not only are you uh, class of 2004, but you're also the director of Tech Enterprise Solutions at One Acre Fund. And I'm sure we'll get into that. It's a very interesting space. And uh, also want to say I'm in Dallas, Texas, and you're in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. Is that correct? Yep. So about an eight hours time difference, I guess. And so it's, yeah, other end of the world right now for me. Well, uh, Scott, I did my LinkedIn stalking on you and, uh, you know, your background, the, the big chunks I'm seeing here, we, we are simpatico in the sense of a tech background and MBA, of course. Um, you've gone into IT consulting and program management and, and now are leading IT for One Acre Fund. Uh, but in your own words, can you give us the Harbor Cruise version of how you got here, you, got, you know, your, your backgrounds, maybe even where you grew up and how you ended up in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. Yeah, so I've lived in Texas all my life. I'm from kind of rural Texas panhandle. And I went to Rice, did my undergraduate there. So I was the youngest person going into my MBA class. I, came, I was one of those people who came in with, with no work experience, basically. I had, you know, kind of been doing internships in the, the tech space, but uh, came in directly just right out of my undergraduate at Rice into the Rice MBA program. Uh, I did my master's degree in electrical engineering at the same time. So while my other classmates were you know, doing the MBA program, I was running across campus, taking engineering classes and basically doing both programs at the same time that I had to complete the MBA. And so that that was kind of my tech focus. So to get into the tech industry and I did the entrepreneurship part of everything. And I, I wanted to kind of to see, I could use tech to make money, essentially. And I, as you mentioned, I got into project management and program management and started leading a lot of really large projects for places like NASA, U.S. Treasury Department, uh, you know, basically these large, you know, logistical projects. Uh, it was really good work. By the, you know, by the time I was 30, I was pretty well set. Uh, had a pretty good life in the U.S., and as things often happen, you know, your life is not really the way you would expect it to be. Uh, and I'll kind of get into the story of how I transitioned into Africa. So my wife was teaching linguistics uh, at the, the University of, of Texas at Arlington. And she met a lady from Sudan she was working with. She was studying the language of Darfur Sudan as her master's degree. And she came home one day and said that she had given $100 to the Sudanese refugee uh, to help her because she was having some hard times. And I, I got pretty angry about that because I had knew nothing about Africa. You know, I was in Mr. MBA, you know, and, you know, I, I decided to go confront this lady because I thought it was like one of these Nigerian email scams or something like that. You know, I knew nothing. I was, like I said, rural West Texas. And when I, I met this lady, I went over to her house to find out, you know, thinking she was basically taking our money. She she opened her door, you know, gave me a big hug, welcomed me and had made a big feast for us. And she said, you know, in my culture, you know, you've helped me out 
And and now I'm here to repay this back to you because um, of the situation I've been in through this war in Darfur, Sudan. And it just really surprised me. I didn't know what to think. And as we went into this lady's house, we saw uh, Sudanese TV. I don't know where she got Sudanese TV from, but we saw these atrocities happening in Sudan. And, you know, it just really kind of really surprised me. And I, I wanted to learn more about this, that thing I didn't know about and refugees coming into the U.S. So long story short, I, I started teaching robotics training to a lot of the refugee kids that were in this community. And we would take these kids with basically no money. We would take them up against the, the top private, you know, Dallas high schools at the time. And these kids, you know, working on no budget could, could beat some of these Dallas big private high schools. And as I talked to the kids, they talked about their education and wanting to learn more. So I, I really wanted to see how I could help out, you know, with these kids from this, the situation they came from, but I didn't know where to start. And I was searching on the internet one day and I popped across this news article that said that the head of the United Nations said that Northern Uganda was the worst humanitarian crisis in the world today. While I was enjoying, you know, partios at the MBA school in Northern Uganda, there were, you know, about 60,000 child soldiers that were taken. And if they spoke up against the army, they had their lips padlocked shut. They had their, you know, ears chopped off if they were listening to what the rebels would say, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and it said nobody was doing anything about this situation. So I told my wife, I said, hey, we're going to get on a plane and go check this situation out for ourselves. We knew nobody. We knew nothing. We just went up there to go check it out. And what we saw when we got on the ground was worse than I had expected. Like I said, people with, uh, you, had, you know, padlock marks through their mouth where their lips had been padlocked shut and limbs cut off and, uh, you know, bombs, you know, uh, mines everywhere. And the war had ended. It was safe at that time. I don't want to make it sound like I was going into a war zone, but the, the situation of recovery was very bad. And we found a group of people and decided to create a, a school for a community of 200 children that we saw where the, their school had been destroyed because of this war and they were just returning home. And so that got very successful. And as that started to grow, we realized we had to be here full time. Basically, you know, people would say that I was the last person they would expect to be coming out here to Africa. Uh, but you know what I saw firsthand and the situations I saw, I, I, I would say like, you know, if, if my friends at business school knew this situation, you know, they would do something about it. You know, nobody would sit back and let these type of things happen. Cause we know a lot of strong people through business school and, you know, our network. So I, I started, when I got to my network, you know, I started raising money for these causes and, um, you know, trying to get help. And eventually that led me to live out here full time in Nairobi, Kenya, which is kind of like the headquarters of where you can do a lot of uh, humanitarian work here in East Africa. And I had the opportunity to come on with One Acre Fund, which is a fast-growing company. It's only been started about 15 years ago. And we now serve uh, over 1 million farmers. Uh, it's grown to that, that rate of the farmers that we serve in that short period of time. And we now have 8,000 employees. And so um, with my job, I get to lead a lot of the tech initiatives that we're doing. Uh, and I can talk about that a little bit more as we, we go through this process. On the humanitarian side, it's really interesting to hear how you had been introduced to what was going on in Sudan and Uganda. And I, I think about this a lot, I read a good bit about morality and ethic and frameworks and how we should go about thinking about donating to other causes, particularly if it's far away from us or people that we don't understand, unless you're, as you're saying, boots on ground. So very broadly speaking, how would you recommend for folks to get versed in 
how they can help and and to better educate themselves on what's going on, you know, out in places like Sudan and Uganda and, and, and Kenya, um, you know, just short of actually flying there like you and your wife did, you know, what, what other kind of ways can folks get, you know, either get educated or get involved that would be most impactful? Well, you know, I would say that it's it's critical to actually talk to, you know, people like myself or other leaders of organizations who do have boots on the ground to really understand the situation. Because I think a lot of people uh, are well-meaning and, and they want to do the right thing. And, you know, without really having that context, it's really hard to understand what people are going through. So, for instance, at One Acre Fund, you know, we work with farmers. And so a lot of times when I talk to people, particularly from Texas, where, you know, where I'm from rural Texas, they say, oh, you know, maybe we'll send over a John Deere tractor. And, and that's what people need. You know, they need a tractor to do better farming. Well, you know, a tractor in, you know, rural Uganda, let's say, there's, there's not going to be parts to repair it. The, you know, if it breaks down, nobody can do anything with it. Uh, the farmer's land size is really not big enough to justify that type of machinery, et cetera, et cetera. And so by talking to somebody, though, that works on the ground, you know, we can help guide the conversation about what is really needed. And it's not that people don't need stuff, uh, you know, but we can direct like the best way to do that. And, you know, a lot of the supplies are already here in East Africa. I think there's an opinion that, you know, East Africa just doesn't have any supplies and, you know, we need to send everything from the U.S., but that's really not the case. We, we do have access to a lot of materials here for, or can source them here locally for much cheaper than sending them from the U.S. Yeah, it, it makes me think of uh, there was a study, and uh, and I'll have to find a way to reference it better here. But er everyone has seen the commercial with the starving child in Africa, and hey, you know, can you just send you know five bucks a month, and this will save that person's life. And uh, the st what the study found was that if someone was willing to give, say, you know, five dollars a month for for um, then the study then went into say, well, okay, we have their identical, you know, a twin sister or brother who's also in the same situation. Would you also give, you know, to that? And it turns out it's it's not linear, you know. So if, if it's five dollars and you go to ten identical people, it doesn't go to fifty. People's willingness to give goes down per capita um, as the depth of the problem goes goes up. And so that, that's why I ask it that way, um, just because I think we can all relate to a singular uh, person's either suffering or you know need for help, uh, but we have trouble trying to get engaged when it's at a much larger scale. So you talk about one million farmers. I think for a lot of people, it's, it's hard to get their head wrapped around how do I help you know that many people, you know, with just all the way from here in the U.S., for example. So the psychology of it is is what I was trying to get after there. And uh, so I don't know if you can kind of run into that, you know, or those conversations transpire in your yeah, orbit. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. So at our organization, when we're working with a million farmers, we do have to look at the impact basis and really measure how much impact we're having on each farmer. Uh, and, and every decision we do, you know, when you're in MBA school, you talk about return on investment, you know, and, and you're looking at every decision you make on what's the return on investment. You always have to be making profit. And for a nonprofit organization, because we're not taking that profit back, what we look at is what we call social return on investment. And so, you know, that might be, for instance, we're giving a family a solar light, but a child can then study uh, during the nighttime hours and get a better education. So we have to really look at that social return on investment, but everything is, is impact and return on investment. Now, that's, that's from an organization at our scale that's trying to reach a million farmers. 
you have to look at that impact. What I say for the average person that wants to get involved in like the nonprofit is to think of the the saying that you should do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. So when I go out to one of these huge slums here in Nairobi, we have slums of a million people. And you look at it and you just say, there's no way I could ever put a dent in this or, or help in the situation. And, and this doesn't just mean like going to Africa. This could also be in your local community, et cetera. I, I think people can make a lot of difference just by focusing on one person. You know, find one person, whether it's a refugee, whether it's a, a homeless person, whether it's, um, you know, somebody with a drug problem, et cetera. And really sow into that person's life and make an impact on that one person. And that's how you kind of can start on this journey, because if everybody were to help one other person and help them in a deep way, you know, not just a hundred dollars or whatever, but really help that person out. I think that's where you, you can see a lot of social, social impact. Um, so yeah, that's, that's two, that's two paths of looking at it, I guess you could say. Yeah. That's a super skillful way of saying that. Th- thanks for diving into that, you know, pretty loaded question. <laughs> so, <laughs> topic. Yeah. Social return on investment. I, I want to put an exclamation point on that. That's a, such a fantastic lens to see things through. Um, so, so kind of back to you know, your role and, and what you're focused on. Um, as you mentioned offline, when you think about helping a million farmers plus, you're not necessarily thinking about the tech that powers all of that, you know, as an IIT and enterprise technology leader, can you help us understand the intersection of helping or actually if we maybe we could even back up even before that you know just the overall charter of one acre fund and what does success look like for the organization yeah sure so what one acre fund does is we supply fertilizer and seeds to smallhold farmers on credit so it's a mixture of logistics and distribution and microfinance and the reason we do this is that you know, agriculture was basically fixed during the, the last century, during the 1900s. In the U.S., we figured out what is needed to make crops grow well. You just need fertilizer, you need improved seed, and, and proper planting techniques. And this stuff is really basic. And so people would say, well, well why isn't Africa doing this? Well, a, a rural farmer in Rwanda, deep in the heart of Africa, doesn't have easy access to that fertilizer. And if, if they can't run down to the local shop and get it because it has to be imported, it's maybe made in another country, and, and to get that to them is very difficult. And on top of that, when they, they go to the shop and they can't find it, they can't afford it. And so the goal is, is that we want to be able to provide that to them on credit and have them repay it because they, they have the money, they can resell the crops and, and repay the loan. Uh, and, and it's not a handout in that way because we're, we're then giving it to them on credit. You know, at the same time, that gets the fertilizer to them, gets the improved seed, and we also provide training. And so that allows them to really multiply their harvest. And uh, in Africa, you know, it, it's enough to, to be kind of the breadbasket of the whole area. And we can help families get through what we call the hunger season, because most of these families are just growing food to support their families, you know, to have food to get through the season. And we're getting to them to the point where they'll have food left over and then they can resell that and start making income for themselves as well. The multiplying the the harvest is really interesting. And certainly that helps farmers in Kenya is the scope beyond Kenya. You mentioned other struggling countries like Sudan and Uganda, or is it focused only on Kenya? The countries that one acre fund works in are Kenya, Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, Zambia, Ethiopia, um, Malawi, we're in Nigeria now as well. 
So it, it's a lot of the East African countries, uh, and, and those countries, you know, are, are typically countries where the income levels are quite low. Uh, you know, they're they're kind of far behind a lot of the indexes, and so that's that's where our, our particular focus is right now. And we particularly focus on the areas where they have a, a large potential for agricultural impact. And when you look at some of those areas, they're, they're quite small geographical areas, but they have a huge potential for for agriculture. And they're just underutilized right now because maybe the, the farming techniques are are more traditional and not you know improved farming techniques. Um, and so yeah, that's where we we fit in. And so uh, through working with a, a million farmers, you can imagine the the impact that that has when you look at the entire eastern East Africa. Yeah, MBAs like to sling around you know KPIs and pull out their spreadsheets and you know fill out the graphs and what have you. So the 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 key performance indicators is is what I'm thinking of. So so when you or you know the board or the leadership team is looking at the agricultural impact, are there certain you know KPIs or metrics that are being followed to to measure how the organization or at, to your saying the social return on investment? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I mean, it comes down to what impact are we having on that farmer? And that for agricultural inputs, that could be measured in terms of their harvest. So uh, we measure that against the control group, for instance. So one farmer is not using our product and, and his neighbor is using our product. And what is the increase that he's able to sell the, the harvest for once, uh, you know, the season's over? So that would be an impact of, of how much money he's getting over his neighbor. Um, the other you know, other kind of impact metrics is we we sell a lot of solar lights and cook stoves. And so we look at impact of, of like reduced kerosene usage. Uh, and that's a big environmental in, impact. We also sell a lot of trees. And so, you know, with, with all the climate change and everything like that, we're we're trying to make a big impact by um, providing trees to farmers, which, you know, also helps with the environment. Um, and we have ways of measuring impact with that side as well. How much do you personally interact with the farmers, sort of the the boots on ground of the folks that you're helping? Uh, in my role currently, you know, I, on a day to day basis, I'm not out in the field as much as I would like to be. Through my time in East Africa, I have spent a lot of time in the field, though, and our, our organization itself has a very heavy field focus. Um, we have a very small U.S. office, for instance, so. When somebody comes to work for us, we we typically have them going directly into a field location where, you know, you we have to understand our farmers, you know, a lot of user centered design where, you know, we don't want to be building tools that aren't relevant to the culture of our, our farmers. So um, uh, although for my role, it's it definitely for more of the tech side, I'm not out in the field day to day. We're you know kind of more in front of the computer. But, um, you know, we do have to spend some time in the field quite a bit and understand the context. So as a tech leader, so going back to the question I was uh, attempting to to tee up probably prematurely, but we can come back to that is, is when you think about helping farmers and distribution of fertilizers and seeds and trees, et cetera, you know, how does technology play into this? I, I mean, clearly there's, you know, some you know, tracking efforts here and what have you, but I, I think it goes deeper because you mentioned logistics and distribution and, and all that is, I'm sure, not done manually, or at least I like to think it's not done with a abacus or something like that you know? <laughs> yeah exactly i think that's what's surprising to people is how much technology is actually involved so if you think about it we we get these farming inputs to within two kilometers of where the farmer lives and we have to do things like one how are we going to collect orders you know from all those rural remote farmers uh 
And so, you know, our, our ordering systems, how do we collect payments from those farmers? How do we get updates to them to know uh, when we'll be in their area? Um, how do we collect our impact? Um, you know, how, how are we measuring, you know, what they're harvesting? Um, there, there's like that aspect of it. And a lot of that is really grown a lot over the last few years due to digital technology. A lot can be done through basic feature phones or smartphone penetration is becoming more in these countries. So that's, you know, SMS, uh, USSD, uh, WhatsApp for business. A lot of people now are using WhatsApp and we can communicate with farmers through WhatsApp. Um, and, and so managing that, taking all that data and ingesting it or what our customers ordered, what their repayments are, you know, how we're collecting the money from them. Um, it, then going on to the side of doing all the financial management that goes along with that, you know. Um, on top of that, we then have to, once the farmers ordered something, we have to get all those inputs to them. So there's all the logistics, warehousing, trucking, logistics, uh, input distribution to farmers. You know, it's a pretty huge logistical problem when you start scaling to that size of 8,000 employees and a million farmers, there's a ton of things that have to happen and all be in sync to operate at that scale. And so across multiple country contexts, multiple exchange rates, multiple uh, government regulations, it, it, it's a real technical challenge, I would say, to make that happen and, and to do it efficiently. You know, we're not losing money terribly on every deal. So how, how many support calls are you getting in the middle of the the night these days <laughs> well i think the thing is i mean both you know most of our stuff happens during the day luckily it's it's very different when i you know maybe worked at nasa or something where they had shifts working at night uh so luckily I, we don't get as many support calls during the middle of the night but a lot of stuff goes down you know obviously when you're you're working in areas that have bad internet connectivity uh it's, it's kind of amazing i can do this podcast here from from nairobi you know and have a, a sort of decent connection but when you go out to the rural rwanda you know, your, your internet access isn't going to be great. And we have to build technologies that will work in those environments. Yeah, we're also simpatico in that way. We, we both worked at NASA. I'll have to chat with you offline on, yeah. on that one. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, you have this large organization, One Acre Fund, and the word competition is coming up in my mind, but it's, it's of course, being a nonprofit, sort of a strange word to use. But what sort of competition or organizations might be impinging on the efforts of what you're trying to do? Are there any interests out there of of people, organizations, or government that run counter to what One Acre Fund is trying to do? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that does happen some. The way we try to treat it as a nonprofit organization is slightly different than a for-profit organization. You know, obviously, we do have people that are trying to do similar things to what we're trying to do um, to, you know, maybe take the market share of our customers. And, and I think the way we kind of view it is as long as the farmer's getting impact, um, if another organization can come around and do it more efficiently than we can, or, you know, have a, a, a better product, you know, it's not like we're, we're in deep throat competition, you know, with them and uh, like a, a for-profit company would have to be. Um, so we do a lot of sharing and collaboration with other organizations and we try to form partnerships. That's one of the, the big things I try to do is, is particularly in the tech spaces, work with other uh, organizations in the nonprofit space to help form those partnerships so that, that you know, we, we can kind of focus on what we're doing and, and not have as much competition. Um, you know, just like, for instance, when if, if we're going to be sending 100 million text messages in a year, if I can get together with another nonprofit organization 
that's also going to send 100 million text messages and, and we can find 30 other organizations in that situation. We can go to the telecom companies and negotiate, you know, let's say a, a one cent rate discount. Well, you know, on 100 million messages, that's a huge dis discount for our organization. So we, we form a lot of collaborative partnership with other organizations and try to uh, get the cost out of what we're, we're doing. So that's that's a, a large part of what I try to do. But yeah, we obviously do have competitors in the space and we, we do have to kind of watch the landscape as well. Maybe two or three sort of final topics uh, here. We've covered a lot of ground and just, I mean, Scott, you just have an incredible energy and you have a giving heart. Um, you've done a lot of work, uh, I think personally and in business uh, with people that need help. And would you like to share perhaps a, you know, a highlight real moment inside of this, this work that you're doing, or maybe, a your proudest accomplishment in your, your professional career? What I would say I'm, you know, proudest of, or, you know, some of the, just the individual success stories of what I've seen from individuals who have who've come out through, through pretty, you know, uh, terrible situations. Um, you know, I, for a while here in Kenya, uh, I used to run an orphanage, several orphanages actually. And, you know, you have kids who come from very bad backgrounds that a lot of people would have given up on. And basically, you know, when those kids come out of the program, uh, you know, they, it's hard for them to, to you know, go into society based on, on their background. And, you know, we've helped a, a couple of those kids go into business, um, you know, even just small business. There's this, this, you know, old proverb that says, you know, if you give a man a fish, you know, he'll you'll eat for the day, but if you teach a man to fish, you'll fish for a lifetime. But then also sometimes you just have to buy the fishing pole for the man, you know? And that's what most people kind of miss out on is that, you know, they kind of say, well, just train somebody how to, to start a business and they'll go do it. But, it, it, you know, if you're you're an orphan or somebody who, who just, you know, doesn't have the resources, they can't do anything. But if you will then, you know, take that person and help them out a little bit, you know, maybe it's just like a little loan that you can give somebody, um, you know, then they can really thrive. And so we, I've seen some really great scenarios of kids that we've been able to help them out a little bit just to get started, you know, in their, their life and, and to watch them grow out to be responsible adults, be contributors to their society. Um, you know, that's what I just really encourage people to do is, like I said, find find one person in your community uh, or, or talk to an organization. Is there somebody in Africa or some other place that you can help through a micro loan? I know our MBA classmates probably have a little bit of money laying around that, that um, and, and I would you know, even suggest that, you know, really sew into somebody and, and try to just see what happens, you know, really trust, trust in people and try to, you know, build them up as a mentor. Um, not, not even more than just training, but, but really help them get to that next point in life. And I, I think amazing things can happen. Awesome. Very cogent, punchy answer. Uh, thank you for that. And so, uh, to circle it back to your business school experience, and are there any skills that you picked up and have have used that you can put your finger on, or or perhaps wish you had focused on more uh, when you were in the program uh, that you could use today, or or wish you could be using today? You know, I mean, I, I think the networking side is really important. You know, the you know being able to use that business school network. You know, when uh, you know I. I basically decided, hey, I want to go, you know, build a school in, in rural northern Uganda. Coming, you know, coming to people and just saying, hey, I need some money to do this. You know, I don't have the money to do this. I need, I need to raise money. I need to raise it quickly. And, and being able to have that network who can step in and and support and 
you know, find the contacts to do that. I think that's an important part of it. But, you know, in every every day, I, I consistently use the skills from business school, whether it's negotiation, you know, how, understanding how to, to work in an international context. Um, but, you know, even in the tech space, I mean, <clears throat> the skills of finance, strategy, the complete business school education has made me be able to come into these contexts uh, and and really thrive. I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, One Acre Fund has been so successful because we have a lot of strong leaders who can look at it, even though it's a nonprofit, to, to be able to run the organization like a professional business and, and take all those lessons learned. And, and when we're looking at supply chain optimization, um, you know, we're able to optimize our supply chain so it doesn't make us go broke on the donations that we do have, you know, things like that, you know, so that's, you know, I, I think the, the Rice Business School education is a, a very strong one. And I think it's something that's really helped me to, you know, have a really well-rounded picture, even though I'm working more on the tech side. I think it's been super important. Awesome. And last two, I think, uh, short fire off questions. Uh, I'm dying to know. You've been there for, I think, many years. So how's your Swahili? It's not so good. At some point, I might try to become a citizen here and, and I'll have to pass the test. So I'm pretty nervous about that. But um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so foreign languages, was, as a tech guy, foreign languages was not my expertise. So I know enough to get by. Barely. <laughs> well, it's still, it's still laudable and commendable. So, okay, perfect. Well, um, the, the last one I'll throw at you, Scott, is, uh, and you've alluded to it, but I'll, I'll ask more directly, is uh, for folks that are interested in either connecting with you to, to maybe go a little deeper or ask more specifics or otherwise connect with One Acre Fund to get involved, um, what are some of the recommended pathways to reach out, uh, learn more, and have more conversation? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the easiest way probably would to be to contact me directly. You know, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to any anybody associated with business school or in the community that's interested. Uh, you know, my profile's on LinkedIn. Um, you know, we might be able to, to provide a, an email contact for me through this. And uh, uh, that would be about the starting point. And then, you know, if it's something that I can't particularly help with, I can definitely direct uh, people who want to get involved more in, in the right direction. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Well, Scott, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, in the spirit of I'll have you know, <laughs> uh, are there any uh, pearls of wisdom or uh, passion projects around the corner or otherwise little known factoids uh, about you that uh, you'd like to share before we adjourn here? Yeah, I don't think there's any little known, known factoids, but what I would just say to people is just to remember that, you know, you know, reach for your dreams and try to do the most challenging thing you can. I mean, it's for me, it's not been easy to move to East Africa for sure and leave my U.S. life behind. And whatever stage you're at kind of in your career, I think there's there's always more and, and getting that momentum and, and the passion behind whatever it is you decide to do, whether it's, you know, jumping into a new business or starting a new business or you know, making a career change, et cetera. I think for me, it's it's been a testament that you can kind of do whatever you want to do, even if you, you never thought you'd be doing it, you know, that, that just grab that momentum and just do, you know, take on that project or, or start the business, do whatever you want to do and, and don't be afraid to do it because it'll end up working out okay. Well, I can definitely feel the momentum and passion in your voice and it's quite palpable. So uh, live in what you preach, love it. Scott, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this and, and I hope that's been mutual. And folks tuning in, 
Uh, thank you for tuning into I'll Have You Know. And take care, everyone, and goodbye. Yeah, thank you. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it. Let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, Christine Dobbin, and David Drew Gleaver. 